Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks, thanks for joining us for yet another adventure. Today, we're taking you to a place ancient in age and known around the world. Most notable for the proving grounds of mankind's fastest adventures. We're talking about the Bonneville Salt Flats. Before we get into this episode, we need to share some updated information with you guys. In the last episode, we told you about the kiln-looking things in the Catholic Cemetery in Central City, Colorado. Jenny found out more information about it and shared with us some updates. The mausoleum was built by an Irishman, not an Italian man. He did still build it for his wife because she wanted to be buried in Ireland. She was laid to rest in the mausoleum for several months to a year before they had the ability to place her in her forever location. Because they had this mausoleum already built, they began using it to place other bodies in it until the weather would cooperate enough to bury them. Not everyone that was placed inside there was Irish, though. Anytime someone would go into the mausoleum to add another body, the non-Irish coffins would be standing on their ends rather than being laid flat like the Irish ones. The town folks thought maybe someone was playing a joke on them, so they decided to padlock the door shut. But that didn't stop the coffins from being stood up on their end. The belief is that the Irish woman did not like having non-Irish people in her space, and maybe she was the one moving the coffins? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, when you look at the mausoleum, there's a giant hole in the side, and Jenny was able to find out that a tree had fallen on it and caused the damage. After that, they stopped using it to place bodies inside. So thanks, Jenny, for finding the correct information and sharing it with us. Yes, thank you. I like that story. Mm -hmm. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, I have a question for you. Okay. How fast have you ever gone in a car? In a car. My cars don't go very fast without running out of gas. (laughs) (laughs) Typically. I don't know. I'd say 120, probably. That's a lie. You told me 55 earlier. Yeah. Beach Boy said I can't go 55, and I agree. <laughs> well, how about a motorcycle? How fast have you ever gone on a motorcycle? Uh, just over 100. Okay. Well, did you know there's a place where cars and motorcycles have reached speeds up to 630 miles per hour? Just a racetrack? No. It's actually the Bonneville Salt Flats, and it's here in Utah. You say true. <laughs> I say thank you. <laughs> How fast have you gone in a car? I'd say probably like 120. Yeah, and at the motorcycle. Oh. Driving. Me driving it? Yeah, yeah. Probably most 80, 85. Yeah. I'm not as daring as you are, <laughs> but at least I've driven a motorcycle that fast, right? Yeah, there you have it. <laughs> well, the Salt Flats are just 110 miles west of Salt Lake City and 17 miles east of West Wendover. It's exit four on the Utah side, just a few miles from the Nevada-Utah line. It's a very iconic exit sign out there because it is Bonneville. Yep, can't miss it. (laughs) mm -hmm. Well, the formation of the Salt Flats began at the end of the last ice age. I was just barely missed it. Yeah, by like a few years, right? Yeah, just a couple years. So when the waters of the ancient Lake Bonneville began to recede... If you don't know what Lake Bonneville is, it's an old prehistoric thing that eventually receded down, and the Great Salt Lake is pretty much the remnant of 
what was once Lake Bonneville. Mm -hmm. So the salt flats is exactly that. It's a salt crust ranging from a few inches thick to about five feet thick. It's a perfectly flat white crust as far as the eye can see. It runs about 12 miles long and it's about five miles wide, covering a total of roughly 46 square miles in total. The Black Mountain Range in the distance provides a beautiful location for a photo shoot. Aside from the views, the area has been used for years to set land speed records. Yeah, I don't, do we have a picture of our car out on the South Flats? Mm, I think I've got the Jeep out there. Yeah, because it's pretty cool because it's flat and white. And if you have the Black Mountains in the background, anything kind of standing in that area really kind of pops. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people go out there to do wedding photo shoots and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Exploration of the salt flats was documented in 1833 when trapper, trader, and explorer Joseph R. Walker mapped the area around the Great Salt Lake and crossed the northern perimeter of the salt flats while working for a fur trading company run by Captain Benjamin L. E. Bonneville. So back then, it was customary to name a location that they discovered after the company that you worked for. And they did it in hopes of getting a raise or some kind of an accomplishment from the company. Benjamin Bonneville may not have ever even seen the salt flats himself, yet they're actually named after him. So I thought that was kind of funny. Mm -hmm. Since 1912, people have been racing on the salt flats in an effort to set speed records. But it didn't become popular until the 1930s when David Abbott Jenkins and Sir Malcolm Campbell began racing there. Sir Malcolm Campbell was a British boat and car racer as well as a journalist. He came to the Salt Flats in 1935 to set his final land speed record. On September 3rd, he was the first person to drive an automobile over 300 miles an hour. That's kind of scary because those cars are kind of shoddy looking built. Yeah, from the 30s for sure. <laughs> No airbags. Yeah. Well, though Sir Malcolm Campbell set the first land speed record on the salt flats, David Abbott Jenkins was the one that put the salt flats on the map. His work and record setting is what made the salt flats what they are today. Jenkins was born in Spanish Fork, Utah on January 25th, 1883, and lived in the Salt Lake Valley. He was a giving man that just loved the sport of racing and wanted the world to know what Utah had to offer. He invited John Cobb to come to the United States to race at the Salt Flats. Jenkins let John stay at his house, and he even let him use his vehicle to set the second land speed record when he reached speeds of 350 miles per hour. That's awesome. Yeah, they said he was cheering for him on the sidelines and everything. <laughs> How cool. Well, Jenkins was setting records of his own prior to racing at the Salt Flats. He was known to race city to city, coast to coast against speeding trains. Not only did he win the race against the train, but he never got a speeding ticket in his life. Jenkins was a Mormon. He never drank or smoked, and he made sure to look his best at the end of every race. Yeah, he would actually keep a shaver and rags in the vehicle. And as he was reaching the end of the race, he would shave his face and kind of clean up while still driving this vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> and the vehicles he drove are nowhere near what we drive today. They were actually an open cockpit vehicle. So if you can imagine, you know, flying down this racetrack and the wind's just blowing your face everywhere and you're trying to shave. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> just thought your whole headrest would be splattered in shaving cream. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> and you say he did it, though, because he didn't like... Uh... 
his appearance. He was caught on video or something all yeah. messy. And he says, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't like the way I look. Yeah. Especially doing like a 24-hour run. Yeah, you're already haggard. Mm-hmm. Well, Jenkins' desire to go faster and set more records prompted him to build a vehicle that would be named the Mormon Meteor. The name came from a competition that the local newspaper held. Jenkins partnered with August Duesenberg, who designed new parts to connect the Curtis Conqueror aircraft engine to the frame of the Duesenberg Model J. Jenkins took the vehicle to the Salt Flats in October of 1936, where he and Babe Stapp drove the car for 24 hours at an average speed of 153.82 miles an hour. The men soon found that the size of the engine and the stock Duesenberg chassis caused understeering at high speeds and set out to fix that problem and create a better vehicle. Because most people have the foresight to just put an airplane engine on a car to start with. I know. I was just thinking that <laughs> this giant engine out of an airplane on this car <laughs> chassis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would go pretty fast too, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, the Mormon Meteor 3 was created in 1937, and Jenkins' son, Marv, at the age of 17, had an active role in building this vehicle. How fun would that have been as a 17-year-old? Yeah, that's good quality father-son time for sure. Uh Uh-huh. In 1939, Jenkins broke all the 12-hour endurance records, pushing the vehicle to 171 miles per hour. In 1940, he set the 24-hour record of 161.180 miles per hour, and that record would not be beaten until 1990, so 50 years he held that record. Mm. Jenkins didn't just race cars. In October 1933, he drove an Alice Chalmers farm tractor 65.45 miles per hour at the salt flats. A tractor, a farming tractor at 65 miles an hour. Mm. He repeated this event at Harvey Firestone's farm in Ohio and again at the Alabama State Fairgrounds, where he reached the speeds of 68 miles per hour. He described racing the tractors as... Riding a frightened bison. (laughs) Maybe that's why tractor racing never really caught on back then. (laughs) Didn't they do tractor racing in... Was it Dirty Dancing? Uh, That was more of a chicken fight. Oh, is that what that was? And that was in Footloose, not Dirty Dancing. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Not going very fast. (laughs) Well, Jenkins also became the 24th mayor of Salt Lake City from 1940 to 44. His mayoral duties did not stop him from racing, though. During his time as mayor, he broke 21 records and got up to speeds of 189 miles an hour. World War II put a temporary hold on racing at Bonneville. Jenkins was able to get back out on the track in 56 at the age of 73. Wow. Uh, He and his son were hired by Pontiac to set a new endurance record in the Pontiac Series 860. Jenkins drove for nearly 16 hours, and his son Marvin completed the remaining 8 hours of a 24-hour run. They drove the Pontiac at an average speed of 118.75 miles an hour, establishing a series of 28 records. This would be Jenkins' last run. On August 9th, 1956, Jenkins was traveling with Pontiac executives in Wisconsin when he suffered a fatal heart attack. His body was returned to Salt Lake City, where he rests at the Wasatch Lawn Memorial Park Cemetery. The following year, Pontiac debuted the new model vehicle, and they named it Bonneville in memory of Jenkins. Hmm. Well, Jenkins' world-famous Mormon Meteor was sold to the state of Utah in 1943 
for one dollar. I would have bought it. Yeah. I'd give him five dollars for it. Yeah. Uh, this was done with a simple proper care agreement stating that the car would be maintained and protected while in the state's custody. For years, the car sat enclosed in a glass case right in the Capitol building. In 1971, the state decided to take the car out of the case and use it in the 24th of July parade. It's also known as Pioneer Day Parade. It's a mm -hmm. big holiday here in Utah where they have fireworks and parades and the whole nine. The rodeos and everything. Yeah, yeah, it's a bigger deal here than the 4th of July, it seems. Yeah. So when the parade ended, no one from the state came to claim the car. Not sure what to do with the car, the trucking company that was hired to tow the vehicle through the parade just dumped it in a wash bay on the company parking lot. Horrible. Yeah, this makes me so mad. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jenkins' son, Marv, got word that the vehicle was no longer locked up safely in the Capitol, and he actually flew to Utah to find out what happened to it. Once he discovered where the vehicle had been left, he realized that this was the least of his problems. The vehicle had been vandalized, one-of-a-kind parts stolen off of it, gum wrappers and marbles were shoved inside it, and water had leaked into the oil case, engine, and transmission, causing damage to the parts built with magnesium alloy. To make matters even worse, he discovered that all the spare parts given to the state had actually been stolen. Amazing. <laughs> so Marv approached the state requesting they give the car back to him, which makes sense. You're not taking care of it. You're not holding up your agreement. I want mm -hmm. it back. Yep. So at first, they were willing to give him the title until they discovered it was worth about five million bucks. <laughs> so we're going to keep it. Yeah. Like, oh, wait a minute. This has money, but we're not taking care of it. Their agreement was to take care of it. Yep. So in 91, 1991, Marv signed a new agreement with the state that gave the family ownership of the vehicle in which he agreed to restore the car. Which he actually, because he helped build it, was like one of the only people that knew how to restore this vehicle. Right. Yeah, and that's great. That's the right thing to do. Yeah. If we're not going to take care of it, we'll give it back to the family, the rightful owners, and you guys bring it back. Right. So Marv put in about 7,000 hours restoring the vehicle, and payment from the state, part of their agreement, was insufficient and in some cases not even paid at all, even though the state agreed to pay all cost of restoration because it was their fuck-up that this car was destroyed. Right. So Marv met with Governor Bangader where they came to a new agreement. The family would still own the vehicle— the state would pay for the restoration, as they ought to. They destroyed it. But the state would retain rights to display it in the capital. Mm -hmm. Reasonable. They have a place to house it and all that. And that's great. Part of the heritage in Utah. Right. So the state wanted to just put it behind a rope, however. And the family insisted it be enclosed, which makes sense. They've got shit thrown in it. There's marbles inside the engine case, yeah. through the intake manifold, all this kind of stuff. We don't want it to be further vandalized after all this going back in. Right. And the state said no dice. They wouldn't put it under a case. It was originally under a case to start with. Yep. So the final agreement, after all this, gave the family back the rights to the vehicle and the state was no longer responsible to pay for the restoration. They totally just backed out of it. Yeah. All their responsibility for it, everything. Yeah. Because they wanted a $5 million car in hopes to turn around and sell it. And when they found out they couldn't, then they were like, well, never mind. If we have to keep it, we don't want it. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, the Mormon Meteor 3 has actually since been fully restored to its former glory. It was taken out on the Salt Flats one last time for the filming of Boys of Bonneville, a documentary about Ab and Marv Jenkins. The Mormon Meteor is now part of a private collection in Utah, and we actually sent the owner a message asking if we could see the vehicle 
but have yet to hear anything back from them. We would really love the chance to not only see the vehicle, but talk to the guy that owns it. I don't know. Maybe one day he'll email us back, but we're really not going to hold our breath waiting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be super cool. Yeah. Well, today, the Bonneville Salt Flats is still used to set world records. Since 1949, the Bonneville Speed Week has been taking place in the area every August. That is, if the salt permits it. There have been a few years that the salt has been too wet and unable for them to hold the event. Racers come from all over the world with big dreams and hopes to beat the current speed record. The driver must compete in two timed races, then take the average of the two races, and that is your top speed. They don't just race automobiles at the salt flats. They also have a class for motorcycles. Yes. Mm -hmm. So if any of you have seen the movie The World's Fastest Indian, and if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. Mm -hmm. That movie is based on a true event. Herbert James Burt Monroe was born on March 25th, 1899 in Edendale, New Zealand. And I'm really sorry if we say that name wrong. Um, he spent 20 years working on perfecting his 1920 Indian motorcycle. He traveled to the United States 10 times. The first time was just to check the area out and kind of get a feel of the track, get an idea of what he needs to do when he comes back. So for the next nine years, he brought his Indian motorcycle to the United States and raced at the Salt Flats. During this time, he set three world records. In 1966, he set a record of going 178 miles per hour in the 883cc class. That's the same size your uh, your old Sportster was. Yeah, which is a tiny bike. And I could not imagine going 178 miles per hour on uh -huh. that thing. Yeah. <laughs> you get that thing up to 80 and you're like, oh, I don't know. Uh -huh. uh, in 1966, he set a 1,000cc class record of 168.07 miles per hour. Which, what is Scarlett and Sadie CC-wise? Uh, shit, they're go by cubic inches at that point. Hmm. Scarlet was a uh, 88 cubic inch and is now a 95 cubic inch. I'm not sure what that is in cc's. Oh, okay. Let's uh, let's hit pause and we'll see. So we just looked up and it looks like Scarlet, the fat boy, who started off as a 94 cubic inch, or no, started off as an 88 cubic inch and is now a 95 cubic inch, is about a 1500 cc engine and Sadie the Road King is about a 1700 cc engine. So bigger than the 1000. By far. Yeah, but he was still using the same bike doing all of this. He mm -hmm. wasn't switching out bikes. Yeah, a lot of this is your displacement inside the engine, so he would be changing his pistons and his heads to get that. Oh, okay. Likely. Okay. So then the last record he set was in 1967, and he set a record of going 183.59 in the under 1,000 cc class. Mm -hmm. So he went faster in the lower class. Uh, Bert passed away on January 6, 1978, at the age of 78, which I just put that together that he was pretty old, like 60s when he was doing this. Mm -hmm. um, so he passed away. In Invercargill, New Zealand. Thank you. <laughs> um, if you haven't seen the movie, we really do suggest watching it. Bert Monroe was an amazing man, and he was able to overcome several disasters to break records. Yeah, full of passion, this guy was. So I was curious as to other movies filmed on the Salt Flats. Utah is a huge state for filming due to its wide variety of terrain. You can pretty much in the same day go to... 
different corners of the state and get snow, you can get desert, you can get forest, mm -hmm. everything. So pretty common. A quick search on imdb.com returned 57 films either having been made or are in the process for the salt flats specifically. So I saw that John Wick 4, slated to come out next year, will have some shots filmed there. I'm excited for that. Yeah, that'll be good. A lot of movies and documentaries regarding autos, of course, were listed. So a lot of car races, hot rod stuff, all that. Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End had some shots on the salt flats. Mm -hmm. uh, Independence Day, both the 96 and 2016 films were listed on there. There was a whole bunch of films not likely ever seen by anyone were also on the list. And another note to the world fastest Indian, many of the locations were also filmed in the Salt Lake Valley. So do you recall driving around and we spotted some of these scenes? Yeah. Yeah. It was like on State Street, right? Yeah. I think the old hotel is still there. Mm -hmm, the so gas we, station. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, well, maybe when we get going on the YouTube side of things, we'll do a, a little video tour of what we found in the movie and visit all the locations. Yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah, it would be way fun. We'll have to have a taxi cab drive us around like he did. Right. <laughs> in late August, the Bonneville Motorcycle Speed Trials are held. The event started in 2004 and is still currently running. During this event, they race motorcycles ranging from 50 cc's to 3,000 cc's. And they have recently added an electric class. Mm. Super exciting. Yeah. In 2016, Valerie Thompson became the first female motorcycle driver to reach speeds over 300 miles per hour. That's intense. In 2019, the Mobitech team became the first traditional sit-on electric powered motorcycle to break 200 miles per hour on an electric motorcycle. And they get up to speed so fast too. That's got to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, we personally have not witnessed the motorcycle races out at the Salt Flats yet, but it's definitely on our list of things to do and see. Yeah. Well, in September of each year, the Salt Flats host the World of Speed. This event is open for anyone. They boast it is for the racers, by the racers. You do have to pay to watch this event as well as the events we just talked about. This event is unique in that they allow you to walk through the pit rows. Here you can get up close to the cars and see what kind of engines sit inside of them as well as meet the drivers. Remember when we went out, we after we came back, because you're walking from the car, we had a great spot on the front lines mm -hmm. and you tune in on your car radio to listen to the announcers. Yep. And we didn't want to get in the car and run over to where the bathrooms were, just honey buckets out there. Yeah. So we just had to keep walking every time we'd go and, and use the restroom. So when we came back, we bought those gas-powered bicycle kits. Yeah. And that was the whole intent was to be able to have something out there. And we bought those. Uh, I've got those vintage radios that we were going to strap on them just for it so we could tune into it. Yep. And then the next year, they were washed out. It was too wet. They couldn't race. Yeah, so, and flooded. Yeah. Yep. Now we have the electric bicycles that would be a lot more practical for next time we're out there. And we still have the radios. Yeah, I've got both the radios still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was way fun. We stopped and got like a styrofoam cooler at the gas station and mm -hmm. loaded it up with some beers and water and headed out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, they don't just do car races at the Salt Flats, though. Every year in May, they hold the Salt Flats Endurance Run. Um, here people test the ability of their minds and their body as they run 100 miles. No, thank you. Yeah. Uh, they have 36 hours to complete the track that takes them along the salt, up the mountain range, and then back down into the salt. 
During the run, you get to see the exact location that the Donner Party got stuck before they made their journey up Donner's Pass. If any of you are interested in doing this race, you can check out the website, which is saltflatsenduranceruns.com for more information. Uh, We will not be joining you at this race, though, because I don't know about you, but I only run if a bear is chasing me. Probably still not running. (laughs) I'll go by the drop and play dead theory. Act big. (laughs) If I see any of that, I'll be seeing it through the eyes of a drone. Yeah, if you remember (laughs) to bring it. All right. Well, (laughs) July of every year, they hold the rocket launches. People bring their homemade rockets to launch them off in a safe location and see how high they will fly. They have rockets that are built to scale and rockets that are made solely just to see if they will be the rocket that launches the highest which I didn't know about this, and we just looked up model rockets. I used to build them as a kid, nearly killed myself one time. (laughs) And uh, I can see spending some of my adult money and maybe joining this just for fun. (laughs) That would be a hoot. Yeah, they have pictures of people out there on the salt plots with their rockets, and some of these rockets are taller than they are. Mm -hmm. So it would be way cool just to go watch them launch. Absolutely. Yeah. We may have to go out there one day. Yep. I'm sure Amazon will have my kit to me tomorrow or the next day. <laughs> Two days prime. <laughs> yeah. uh, last year during COVID and everybody kind of being in lockdown, kayaking in the cell flats became a huge thing. People were posting all kinds of pictures on TikTok and YouTube and everything. So you can get online and see it. Parts of the salt flat are carved into canals and ponds, and these are used by the Intrepid Potash Company to extract valuable minerals from the rich brines. Though the water is a rich bluish turquoise color and the pictures of the area are beautiful, the BLM advises against people boating and kayaking in the area. First of all, it is part of an industrial runoff area, So they are kind of unsure of what kind of contaminants could be in the water. Mm -hmm. And second, it is on private land. So you're trespassing. So just don't. Yeah. And the other thing I didn't put in here, but I just remembered where you have to park your vehicle and then kind of hike out to it. The parking is um, you're illegally parking your car as well. You're on the shoulder of I-80 at that point, aren't you? Exactly. Okay. So you're going to get a ticket for your car, all kinds of stuff. Well, so they've since gone in and tried to fence the area off as well as place no trespassing signs. And the company does have employees that survey the area. And if you are caught, you could be arrested. So you're you're facing tickets for your car, arresting, everything just to go do this. Yeah. Again, we'll try a drone. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it would be really cool to see it for sure. Mm -hmm. Just not worth it the effort of getting in trouble. (laughs) Right. Well, we mentioned a bit ago that you can see some remains of the Donner's Party attempt to make it across the salt flats. Travel across the Great Plains for the pioneers was extremely dangerous. They had to worry about Indian attacks, the wagon breaking on a trail, or worse, getting sick or hurt. Yeah, lack of food, all kinds of stuff. mm -hmm. The Oregon Trail was known as the Graveyard Trail for a time because so many people passed away along this trail. The most well-known disaster of pioneer travel through this area was the Donner Reed Party. In spring of 1846, roughly 87 people and 23 wagons left Illinois for California. 
The trouble started for them in Ohio when Lansford Hastings promised them that he knew a shorter route to California. The California Trail had the pioneers traveling through Wyoming, Idaho, and Nevada, avoiding Utah entirely. Probably a good idea. <laughs> right? I tried that too. <laughs> and eight years later, you're still here. Mm-hmm. Well, Hastings' plan was to cut through Utah and meet up with the trails in Nevada. Though this trail is shorter, it goes through a much more aggressive terrain. Hastings did not consider the size of the party on the new terrain, and tragedy began for them on the salt flats. The group had used up all of their energy trying to cut a trail through the Wasatch Mountains. They were tired and they needed to rest, but they continued on. Once they reached the salt beds, it was hot. There are no trees in this area and no drinkable water. There, I mean, there's water, but it's salt water. You can't, you just dehydrate yourself drinking it. Several wagons got stuck in the salt-crusted mud and had to be left behind. Many of the oxen pulling the wagons died during the trek, and several of the cows didn't make it through the mud. We should take this time to explain the dangers of the salt flats even today. When the salt dries, it forms a sharp crust that if you are to walk on it without shoes, you'll pretty much cut up your feet. Have you done it before? No, I always wear shoes. Oh, I did it as a kid. Oh, yeah? And it's extremely painful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, don't do that. So when the salt is wet, it forms a soft, mushy layer that if you apply too much weight to it, you'll sink and you could get stuck. I know I've sunk through a couple little spots, shallow spots, but enough to get you all soaking wet. Mm -hmm. Well, even today, knowing all this, folks will still drive their cars out onto the salt flats. If you stay on the part of the salt flats that have been maintained for the races, then you'll be fine. If you wander off that section, you have a great chance of getting stuck. If your car does get stuck in the flats, you more than likely will have to hike to the main road to get cell phone service. Middle of the desert. Yeah. Then you have to call a tow company in Wendover to come and get you unstuck. The tow companies out there have a special rig that is able to get your vehicle out, but I can't imagine what that tow bill would cost. Oh my gosh, no. I don't want to. I don't think AAA will cover that necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) Your insurance will though. Yeah. Yeah, you might need your insurance after that. I've had several people bring their vehicle to me that have gotten it stuck out on the salt flats. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Well, also, if you do plan to drive your vehicle out on the salt flats, you'll spend the entire next day cleaning off all the salt on the underside of your vehicle. Because if you don't, salt's obviously very corrosive and will start to destroy the underside of your rig. Yeah. Remember when we took the my old Jeep out, that old Wrangler? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we had the mud tires on it, so it splattered salt everywhere. Everywhere. And then if you get outside and you get back in it, then it's all over inside the car. Mm-hmm. And Didn't we find a car wash in Tooele, I think, and we got the rough hosing down of it. Yeah. But we did spend the whole next day trying to get all the rest of that crap out of it. Oh, yeah. And then if you if it rains and you drive your car, mm-hmm. you'll still see salt just puddling. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. stuck in everything. But we got some cool pictures. Yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, so these are the conditions that the Donnery party was facing. With the Jeep? No, with the Ligers. Oh, gotcha. The Ligans and the Ligers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and I think about that. I mean, these guys, most of them were walking across with no shoes, not a lot of clothing, a lot of... We say ill-prepared. Yeah. And just those few steps that I took out on the salt flats with no shoes was painful and they just had to continue on they had no choice and Mm. and these guys were walking i mean we say they had wagons but their wagons were full of all their supplies so it's just got to be horrible 
once they were finally able to make it out of the salt flats and into Nevada, they were weeks behind schedule. Rather than stopping and setting up camp in an area for the winter, they continued on to the Sierra Nevada mountains. Near a high pass, which is now called Donner Pass, it started to snow. And we've been stuck on Donner's Pass before, remember that? Mm -hmm. And it's scary. They were enclosed in deep snow. The pioneers could no longer push forward to California. They were trapped. Well, they split the group up into two parties, with one group camping at Donner Lake and the other camping in Alder Creek Valley. The weeks went on with no break in the storm. Eventually, a group of 15 folks made snowshoes and attempted to make it over the mountain in search of help. Along the way, eight of them passed away, and the remaining seven made the choice to eat them in order to stay alive. The seven were able to make it to find help for the group left behind, but things for them were not any better. Of the roughly 87 folks in the group, only 48 of them made it back alive, and they had to resort to eating people that had passed away in order to survive. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Well, needless to say, the Hastings cutoff was a failure, and travel through the salt flats stopped after the Donner Party had such drastic failures. For many years, folks were still finding remnants of the Donner Party in the salt flats. Today, you can go visit the Donner Reed Museum in Grantsville, Utah. Here they have several parts of the wagons that were recovered and on display. Which we haven't been there, and I really want to go now that I found out that this is a thing. Yeah, we have a couple things to hit up out in Grantsville. Yeah. Well, while doing research on the salt flats, we discovered that people have been going to the salt flats to partake in what is called ski-during. Is that what we decided? I think ski-oring is what we called it. Yeah, ski-oring. S-K-I-J-O-R-I-N-G. Yeah. Um, this event evolved from the Sami people who skied behind harnessed reindeers as a way to travel across the plains. Santa Claus. Kind of. But they had skis, not sleighs. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yeah. Um, it has actually since been turned into a competitive sport. People today still partake in this sport. And we know for sure several places in Colorado will shut the streets down and hold these races. Mm -hmm. Colorado was trying to get it on part of the Olympics one year. Nice. <laughs> That'd be kind of fun, huh? Uh -huh. Though they are not being pulled behind a reindeer, they're now being pulled behind a horse. So that part of it's kind of changed. The article I read about people skiing on the salt flats was about a group that was being pulled behind a Harley Davidson, mm -hmm. still using horsepower, but just in a different form. Iron horse. <laughs> um, if you do decide to try this at the salt flats, make sure you stay in the designated area, as well as you may want to look into if you need to obtain a permit. Um, in 2016, a group of men, part of a Canadian lifestyle group, they actually went out to the salt flats to try wakeboarding behind a bus, which sounds really fun. Yeah. But they were caught and they didn't have a permit and they were cited with several thousand dollars in fines as well as being banned from any America's public lands. Yeah. You said a lot of that was because it just destroyed the salt flats, right? Yeah. They were really rough with everything and leaving large ruts in the salt mm -hmm. from the tires. And it, it takes a long time to kind of flatten that all back out and a lot of work. Mm -hmm. So for somebody to go in there and just tear it all up without any regard to anybody else is really unfortunate to have that kind of a mindset. Absolutely. Just a thought, I was, when I lived out on the Oregon coast, we had a, um, a car show out there on the, basically it's right on, right off of the beach. Okay. 
there was somebody there selling little tiny glass vials of salt that came off of the tires of some car. I can't remember whose it was, but it was a big deal for them that they were there and just collected all the salt off of some guy's tires that he raced out there. I don't know if he oh, wanted to set a record or anything like that, but they were selling these little tiny vials for about five bucks a piece. Huh. That's how renowned this place is that anybody that's a, a vehicle enthusiast or land speed enthusiast that doesn't have a chance to get there would have been able to buy a sample of it type of thing. Yeah. It's fun. Kind of crazy. Yeah. That's cool. Well, if you're ever in the area of the salt flats, make sure to stop for a visit. It's well worth a stop, even mm -hmm. if it's just at the rest stop. Uh, there does not have to be an event going on for you to stop. Just the views alone are worth it. Yeah. Um, keep in mind it is the desert, therefore it's going to be hot or cold in the winter. There's no running water in the area and no shade. So make sure you're prepared for your visit and uh, put bring shoes. Yeah. Also, there are no restrooms. So make sure you stop at the rest stop before you go. Yeah. We were, when we were kids, my dad got this great idea that we were all going to pile in the van and go out to the salt flats to see the races. Mm -hmm. And he didn't realize that the races were the weekend prior. Oh, Oops. So we drove all the way out there and there was nothing there but the painted lines for the track, which uh. they, they don't paint them anymore. They use cones. Right. But I remember seeing those painted lines and it was really surreal being out there and nobody's around and you're just alone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was my first time ever going out there. You know, my mom was kind of a little upset that we drove all the way out there for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad was trying to like make the best of all of it. And us kids, we didn't care. We were just happy to be out and having fun, you know? Yeah, yeah we stopped with my niece just to show her. Uh, we, I was taking her to California to tour the Winchester house. Mm-hmm. And we'd stopped at the rest stop out there and took some pictures and walked out on the salt. It's kind of full, you know, kind of cool. Yeah. Well, the rest stop that is just east of the salt flats, it's actually a great place to go if you want to see the salt flats, mm -hmm. but you don't want to drive out onto the salt. They have, you can park there and then walk out. Right. Um, there are plenty of photo opportunities and a chance to get out on the salt without needing a car wash after yeah. a, an expensive car wash because <laughs> you're going to wash your car a lot. Um, while at the rest stop, you will see information of a town that once existed close by. The town was called Saldero. The name is actually Spanish, and it means hard salt. Kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Like many of the ghost towns that exist today, Saldero started because of mining. But rather than mining for gold or silver, this town was built around mining for potash. Uh, potash, I didn't know what it was, so I looked it up. Basically, it's a potassium-rich salt that's often used in fertilizer nowadays. Yeah, and residents began moving to the area in the 1930s. They had roughly 200 people living in the town before it became unprofitable to mine for potash. Mm -hmm. Didn't you say there's a uh, alternate or an indie band named Salduro that's based out of Utah as well? <laughs> yeah, Ogden, Utah. When I was looking up the information on the town, I found that band. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they have like two or three albums. I think they just launched a, their third album like this year. Awesome. Uh -huh, kind of fun. Hard Salt, playing for you. Yeah. They had like a picture of the lead singer lady in her little outfit at one of the concerts they went to. Mm -hmm. And they like put her picture next to the picture of the lady from the Magic School Bus because the outfit she was wearing looked just like that <laughs> outfit. <laughs> nice. So they seem kind of like a fun little band. Their music wasn't terrible. We listened to a little bit of it. Yeah. 
while the town of Potash was put on the maps when, on June 23, 1924, U.S. Army pilot Russell Maugham performed the first dawn-to-dusk transcontinental flight across the United States. Around four that morning, he took off from Mitchell Field. He averaged 135 miles an hour and reached Dayton, Ohio, around 8 a.m. to refuel. From there, he continued west, making a few more stops along the way. He landed in Saldero, Utah, about 6.30, fueled up one last time, and arrived in San Francisco at 9.46 p.m., with just one minute to spare before dusk arrived. <laughs> His total travel time was 20 hours, 48 minutes. The actual flight time was 18 hours and 20 minutes. Unfortunately, he had faced some bad weather and a few setbacks during his flight. None of that mattered, though, because he was the first man to fly from coast to coast, dusk to dawn. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it's awesome. One of the incidences he ran into was when he stopped for fuel, I think it was like the second or third time, his plane was too heavy to take off oh. and the, on the, the, what do they call it? The landing strip. Yeah. So it was too heavy to take off in the landing strip because the landing strip was soaking wet from all the rain. Mm. So he couldn't get enough traction to get speed. So they had to empty some of the fuel out of his plane. And then he had to detour, fly to another airport that wasn't flooded out, refuel again, and then take off. (laughs) It's an adventure. Yeah, crazy, but he did it. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. The town of Saldoro felt a drastic decline in its economy around the 1940s when the, the Solvay Processing Company closed its stores. Then in 1944, a fire swept through the town, and from there it was abandoned I mean, you have no work. Why rebuild, you know? So there's nothing left of the town to see today. Just kind of little posters or billboards kind of saying that this is where it was. Hmm. We have been to the salt flats several times. And I don't know about you, but I get such a rush out of driving our vehicle as fast as we dare on the salt flats. I don't like it. You don't like it? Well, I think it's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Once you get your vehicle up to a certain speed, you can actually start to see the curvature of the earth. I don't know. The car actually starts to feel like it's floating and there's nothing to fear. There's no one out there to get in a wreck with and there is no potholes on the ground that you have to watch out for. Well, I mean, I guess I'd kind of take that back. There aren't potholes, but there are areas that are too wet to drive on. So just stay on the track. Don't do anything crazy out there. Right. Well, on the way out to the salt flats from Salt Lake, you'll see what people call the Tree of Life sculpture. But its real name is Metaphor. (laughs) Sounds like a rock band. Yeah, Metaphor. Uh, The tree is on the north edge of I-80. You can't miss it. You'll see it for a few miles before you get up to it, so you'll have plenty of time to slow down if you want to check it out. Uh, Carl Momen, a Swedish artist, created the 87-foot tall tree. He worked on it from 1982 to 86 and funded the entire project on his own, which cost him about a million bucks. Momin used 225 tons of cement, almost 2,000 ceramic tiles, and 5 tons of welding rods. The sculpture consists of a squarish trunk holding up six spheres that are covered with natural rocks and minerals native to Utah. Once the sculpture was finished, he donated it to the state of Utah and moved back to Sweden. That's nice of him. Mm -hmm. Today when you go to visit, there is a fence around it to keep vandals out because people suck and they're trying to ruin it for some reason. There has been talk of a visitor center being built in the area, 
but they're actually having a difficult time securing all the funds needed to build it. Hmm. I remember the first time seeing it as a younger lad. Mm-hmm. What is that tree doing out here in the middle of nothing? And as you get closer, it's huge. You yeah. Know, that's why you're seeing it from such a far distance, but yeah. kind of insane. Now it's just something you kind of pass by. You know, we've stopped a couple mm-hmm. times actually and taken a look at it. Well, he said that he built it because he drove through the salt flats years prior. Mm-hmm. and felt that it was just really kind of monotonous, I guess. Which it is. It's flat desert. <laughs> yeah. So he wanted to put something there that was beautiful and kind of went with the terrain, I guess. Yeah. So it's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. And I guess another note, if you're going to go out to any of the World of Speed events, mm-hmm. book a year early. Because they uh, Wendover is not a great big town, and that's the nearest place yeah. to stay. Otherwise, you're driving 100 miles from the Salt Lake area, or you could stay in Grantsville or Tooele or whatever, but that's only saving about 20 miles or so. Right. And everything is just booked up for a year in advance, whether the event happens or not. You cannot get a room. So if you're planning to go, plan ahead. Yeah, and I don't think they let you camp out on the Salt Flats. No, I don't believe so either. Yeah, so there's, I mean, what, three, four casinos out there? Yeah, yeah, a small pile of them. Mm-hmm. So there's not much. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. That is the glorious Salt Flats of Utah right here in our backyard. Not physically speaking, but you get it. Yeah, you get it. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we can't skip over these. So do you want a, a moment to tell your dad joke or do you feel like you got them all out of your system already? No. Uh, the Ligers wasn't that funny. <laughs> None of them are. <laughs> this one's funny. All right. You laughed about it. Okay. Because this joke is actually brought to you by a fellow we met in the Missoula KOA. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks for the chuckle, Byron. I hope we get it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You laughed when he told you. So, we'll see if you laugh when I tell you. Yeah. The, the delivery may be different. We'll see. <laughs> so, if you've been to San Francisco, you understand that it is an uphill in all directions from wherever you stand. Mm, I concur. It was common practice for the Asian community to follow on foot behind the hearse leading to the cemetery. Mm -hmm. This was the case when a hearse driver had forgotten to put the pins in place that secured the casket. After some time driving across multiple trolley tracks, the casket gave the last bump needed to burst through the rear door. The casket hit the tracks and the procession parted in fear that this casket's going to run him over. Mm Mm-hmm. The casket is now sliding down the trolley tracks, picking up some speed. Further down the hill, the tracks bends to the right. The casket, however, has nothing to guide itself along the rails. Across from the bend is an old corner drugstore, kind of a wedge-shaped building with the old double doors. Mm -hmm. So as the casket gets to the bend, it continues straight off the track and blasts through the old double doors of the drugstore. It continues wreaking havoc, knocking over displays and book stands as it plows to the back, where it finally comes to the rest at the counter of the druggist. The lid pops open. It was a split casket, so just the torso side, and the body sits up. The druggist, of course, a bit surprised, asks if there's anything he can help him with. The body inside asks if there is anything he has that can help stop this coffin.
want a courtesy laugh? Oh. <laughs> I'll try to insert it in That was so fake. Oh. Like, unbelievably fake. <laughs> yeah. We should, we should have seen if Byron would send us a recording of it himself, maybe. Yeah. Well, he was pretty good with his uh, delivery and how we all got to that joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All righty then, well, <laughs> there it is, <laughs> the end of the remaining few listeners we had. <laughs> well, we do appreciate the few of you there left uh, following along, <laughs> up yeah. to this point at least. <laughs> so as always, we'll have some pictures up on the website. At rebelatlarge.com. Uh, if you want to follow along, we're most active on the Instagram. At rebelatlarge. If you're still interested in listening, uh, we'll be back to you here <laughs> in a couple weeks. Safe travels. We'll see you all down the road. Say that funny? No. A documentary about Ab. Habib. <laughs> That's why I stopped there. <laughs> <sighs> In late August, the Bonneville motorcycle speed trails are hot. <laughs> Doesn't say hired. <laughs> They're speed trials, not trails. Yeah. Okay. In spring of 1846, roughly 87 people and 23 la laggins. Laggins? Laggins. <laughs> How do you pull a laggin, do you think? With yeah. a llama? No, it's a liger. You have to have a liger do it. Okay. <clears throat> so they're, it's kind of new technology. Um, there's not a lot of them out there. Ligers or laggins? Both. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> So sorry, all you flat earth believers. Just kidding. <laughs> there are people that believe that. You know that, right? I do. Okay. Well, I, the don't, car I don't care. Oh. <laughs>